Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day. It's great. Good morning. It's great to see all of you. Hey, um, some of you missed this when you walked in. A lot of you didn't, but I just want to point it out to you that when you came in out in the atrium, there is a place out there that we've set up for you to get a picture today. We'd love for you to make a memory. So we've got a nice camera set up there and we can, uh, you know, we're, we'll get you this picture and just something that as a keepsake. And you might have also noticed on each side of that little photo area out there is two tables and one has a chocolate, like a milk chocolate fountain, and the other one has a white chocolate fountain. Did anybody miss this when you walked in? Are any of you going, what? Where was I? I'm walking around and people are eating donuts. I said, you need to go dip that in the chocolate back there, you know, and I, I thought maybe I'm being a bad influence on people. But anyway, we want to celebrate not just moms today, but we just want to celebrate women in general because God gave you and only you, the role to play in this world. And we want to celebrate that. It's, it's a great role. And we just thank you for that. And uh, so we just want to celebrate when the best way to celebrate anything is with um, chocolate. And so that's, that's what that is out there for, ladies. And so uh, help yourself. Make a memory today. We're so glad that you're here. But we are continuing our series, as many of you know, called The Story. And and just in case this is your first time with us today, and I know many of you are, um, we're spending a good chunk of this year studying the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're using this resource right here called The Story, which takes a whole lot of the Bible and puts it in chronological order, and it's supposed to read from beginning to end just like any other book. And we'd love for you to come on this journey with us. And if you're like, yes, I want to do that, then we've got a book for you out at the Welcome Center. We'd love for you to pick that up and come back next week and join us. All we're asking you to do is to read one chapter per week and come back here on Sundays ready to study. So today we're moving into chapter four and the title of this chapter is Deliverance. This is the part of the story that we get introduced to a guy named Moses. Have you ever heard of him before? Okay, good. Even if you have not spent a lot of time in church during your life, this is a name that's probably not unfamiliar to you. Moses is kind of even a part of our our culture, whenever the conversation of the Ten Commandments. And I'll tell you, one of the most famous movies of all time, Charlton Heston played Moses in that famous movie back in the day. In fact, Moses is such an important person in the Bible, he is mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament to the tune that his name is mentioned 852 times in the Bible. So he is a key piece of this story. Now, he is an incredible leader, but as you're going to see with a lot of people in the Bible, there's some flaws too. He's definitely not perfect by any means, but God still uses him to fulfill his purpose. And in the life of Moses, we continue to see this trend all throughout the Bible that God is going to use the most unlikely of people to fulfill his purposes. And Moses is no exception to that. So you got your story Bibles, why don't you open up to page 43. That's where we're going to be today. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you a few things about Moses. Moses was born during a, a very turbulent time in the history of the Israelites, also known as the Hebrews in the story. Now you might recall, if you've been with us throughout this study, that God made a promise to whom? Abraham. And what was that promise? That out of him would grow this mighty nation, that he'd be the father of many people. Remember, God took him outside and said, Moses, look, or Abraham, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can count them. That will be like your descendants, and I will be your God. They will be my people. And this nation, 
is going to be the vehicle that God uses to restore a right relationship with his creation. So God builds a nation. And you know, Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob had a lot of sons, one of whom we studied about specifically last week. His name was Joseph. And if there was anybody in this story early on that tapped into this idea that God had an upper story and we're living the lower story, it would be Joseph. Do you remember what he said to his brothers after all of those years, after they sold him into slavery? He said, listen, I know what you guys did. You did it to harm me, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. And in that saying, right, that little statement Joseph saying, I know that there's something so much bigger going on than what is happening right now. And that's a reality that we, as a family of the Lord, need to tap into as well. That there's something bigger that God is doing. We can't always see it, but God is always at work, and he's got the upper story. So after Joseph, no, no, let me back up. Joseph is the reason for why his family came to Egypt. So now his family is growing in Egypt, and now they're going to multiply rapidly. There is over 400 years. There's a 400-year span of time between Joseph and Moses. That's a long time. Just to give you a little perspective, the, that same 400 years for us would take us back to 1617. That would be the year. We weren't even a nation yet. That's how long. And most Bible scholars believe that during those 400 years, that family, Joseph's family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that family grew to somewhere between 1 and 3 million people. So this is a, a rapidly growing group. This God's nation, this, this nation he's building right there in Egypt has gotten quite large. So large that people started to take notice, especially Pharaoh. So let's look at the top of page 43 and let's start reading. This is the equivalent to Exodus chapter 1 verse 6. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all of that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. In other words, that's saying, hey, generations later there was a new king and, and he didn't even know who Joseph was. That's kind of how that is. It meant, meant nothing to him. He came to power. And in verse 9, he said, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. You understand what he's saying? This group that's growing up right under our noses will get so big that if they decided to turn on us, we couldn't stop them. And we need to deal with them right now. So there was this fear that had developed inside of Pharaoh's heart and his mind and among many people. And so Pharaoh, what he did, first step, let's turn them all into slaves. That's what he did. I'm going to make them all slaves. I'm going to make them work for us. I'm going to oppress them and I'm going to suppress them so that they can never rise up against us. And then Pharaoh issues the most ungodly, ruthless order that I think the world had ever seen at that time. Do you know what it was? Kill all the boys. Kill all the boys. Throw them in the Nile River the day they are born and drown the boys. In Pharaoh's mind, he's going to put a stop to this growing population of Israelites. In, on page 44, you read this exact order that he gave, top of the page. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, 
Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be an Israelite woman during this time? And maybe you're six months pregnant at the time, and this order comes down from the Pharaoh that if it's a boy, you have to drown him in the Nile. I don't, it's hard to imagine what must have been going through their minds. This is the exact dilemma that Moses' parents were facing. Look at page 44. Let's keep reading the story. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it, and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. You know, the Bible doesn't really tell us what Moses' mother was hoping to accomplish by this action. You know, I've shared with you many a times that I wish sometimes when I read Bible stuff in the Bible, there was one more sentence in there. Like, man, I just, what was she thinking? It, the, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what she was thinking or what she was hoping to accomplish by this, what we do know is that she was absolutely not going to drown her son in the Nile. It's almost like she's thumbing her nose at Pharaoh saying, "Uh uh-uh, not this one, not going to do it. She took great care to protect this baby, and and she she created this basket. She made sure it was waterproof, that it wasn't going to tip or sink, and she puts baby Moses in the basket, and down the river he goes, and Moses' older sister kind of hangs by the banks of the water to watch. Here is a story about a mother who is holding on to hope, even if it's just a little strand of hope, she's holding on to hope. And I think it's maybe perhaps something kind of like a mother today who might give up her child for adoption because she knows that the situation is dire and incapable of caring. And there's this holding on to hope. God, go with this child. Bless this child. Be with this child. Hope. What a choice. It's a choice that I hope none of us ever have to face. It is ungodly decision. Kill your son. But against hoping is all odds that he would be saved. I think you could make the argument that Moses' mother is quite courageous. You know, I I didn't plan it this way, but but here we are on Mother's Day, and we're reading about an incredibly courageous mother. I think it takes a lot of courage to be a mom today. What do you think? Absolutely. You know, I said that in first service in silence. I said, you don't agree? (laughs) Yeah, we agree. I think I caught him off, off guard. It takes a lot of courage to be a mother today. You know what else takes courage? It takes courage to raise these kids to know Jesus. It takes courage to even trust God to maybe have kids one day. I know in our church right now, there are families that are holding out to hope. God, would you bless us with a child? And here we are, another Mother's Day, and it hasn't happened. And you're wondering, did God forget me? It takes courage to hold on to that hope. I know on a Mother's Day, it's really joyous for some. And for others, it's probably the hardest day of the year. Because it's a reminder, again, of a relationship that's not what it should be. Or something that somehow got broken. But you don't give up hope. 
And it takes courage to hold on to hope that God is still a God who forgives and God is the one who can absolutely restore. Some of you today are facing your first Mother's Day without your mother. It takes courage to stand and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. That everything is under your control. I I trust you. But I'll tell you, you could say Mother's Day is more about courage than anything else. And we're reading here about Moses' mother, who I think is an example of courage. And that she was going to have hope that God was going to go with this baby. And hope arrived in the most unlikely of forms. It comes from Pharaoh's very own daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, the one who issued the decree to throw the baby, she's out there hanging out by the water. And here comes this basket. And she picks it up and she sees that there's a little Hebrew baby there. And she has pity on this little baby. She's like, oh, I'm going to raise this child as my own. And here's something else. Very interesting about the story. She goes, I need a Hebrew mom. A Hebrew mom that can take care of this baby. Um... Um, I know you. And it just happened to be Moses' mother. Now you're telling me God doesn't have an upper story going on. So Moses, what happens in his life, he grows up in the household of Pharaoh. If you can imagine, this Hebrew boy grows up under Pharaoh's care, and he's, he's granted all the privileges that anybody in his household would have. He, he learns all the Egyptian culture, and, and he's living like an Egyptian. But as he gets older, Moses becomes increasingly burdened by the uh, hostility that Pharaoh has towards his own people. And, and so um, it's, it's a real burden to him we read about in Scripture. Now look what happens next on page 44. One day after Moses had grown up and he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. Now, don't miss this. This is premeditated murder. He looked around to make sure the coast was clear. And he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. They know. They know what happened. And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Yes, it did become known. Even Pharaoh found out about it, and Pharaoh was so angry about it that he wanted to kill Moses. So how about that for a happy family? You know what? I'm going to get rid of you, Moses. And so Moses does the only thing he knows how to do. He runs away. But again, even in all this, we see that even though there were bad things happening, God is going to use these things for his glory. Why? Because God has an upper story, and we can never lose sight of what God is doing in the world. So Moses, he's 40 years old when this happens, when he runs away from Egypt. And Moses will go and start a whole brand new life in a whole nother place. He'll have a family. He lives in this foreign land. And he'll do that for another 40 years. And when Moses reaches the age of 80, he stumbles upon something that he has never seen before. Which is kind of shocking because at 80, how often do you stumble upon things you've never seen before? You would think that at 80, he'd pretty much seen everything and but he sees something he's never seen before. Do you remember what it was from the story? There was a bush. And this bush was on fire. Except this bush was not burning up. It was on fire, but it looked brand new. And it's enough to make you go, hmm. 
And that's what it did for Moses. So he goes to investigate why there's a bush that's on fire and it's not burning up. And then all of a sudden, out of this bush comes a voice. And it's the voice of God. And God speaks to Moses through this bush, and we'll often refer to this as the burning bush. And God says, hey, Moses, I have seen the suffering of my people. I have heard them cry out to me, and now it's time to do something about it. And my guess would be right here at the beginning, this might be good news to Moses. Absolutely, it's about time. I watched it with my own eyes. I grew up watching the oppression. All right, God. And then he finds out that God's plans involved him. And now he's not so sure. On page 46, this is Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, it says this. So now, Moses, go. This is what God says to him. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses says, uh, come again. Uh, that's literal translation from the Hebrew language. Uh, come again. This is not the response that we would expect, right? It's like, uh, I think you got the wrong guy. And as you keep reading the story, you see just how much Moses is struggling with what God wants him to do. Moses doubts himself. We see that Moses has um, a, a real sense of insecurity about what God wants him to do. I imagine that Moses internally is going, you've got the wrong guy, God. God, this is a, you, you actually got the wrong guy. There's no way. You, you know what happened all those years ago. I can't go back there. I'm a dead man if I go back to Egypt. They haven't forgotten what I've done. You know, the family I grew up in, God, that's still the family that's running the place. I can't go back there. And we read that and we're like, come on, Moses. Now, we have a come on, Moses attitude because why? We've read the whole story. We know what God's going to do, but look at it from his point of view. He hasn't been there in 40 years, and the last time he was there, it didn't turn out so good. And he doesn't know how it's going to end. He doesn't know. You know, I'll be honest with you. The older I get, the less critical I am of people's responses in the Bible. You know, years ago, I used to come down kind of hard on Moses for, for doubting. And, you know, you take like Peter. Peter, how, how could you deny Jesus? Come on. And like Thomas, come on. You went around with Jesus for several years and you didn't believe when everybody else. And, but, you know, as I've gotten a little bit older and got a few more years under this belt of mine, I... I uh, kind of have a different attitude. I guess my attitude's kind of like this now. If God was still writing the Bible, and for whatever reason he recorded a little piece of it about my life, I promise you I'd sound a lot like Moses. Uh, me? No, no, you, you can't mean that, Lord. No, no, not at all. And maybe your story would sound similar as well. Imagine from, God, from Moses' point of view, he's like, God, you want me to walk up to the most powerful man in the known world. You want me to go up to him and you just want me to say, let my people go. And you expect him just to let him go. You actually want me to do that. So I'm not as critical as I used to be of how people respond in the Bible. But at the same time, when God prompts me to do something, I don't want to respond like them neither. I mean, I would hate to get to heaven one day and have God say to me, you know what, Joe? There were so many times that I, I, I wanted you to do something and I tried to prompt you to do something and you said no or you talked yourself out of it or you didn't trust me enough to see you through. Have you ever felt like Moses? God, you've just got the wrong person here. You can't mean me. God, I see the need in front of me, but 
Somebody else is going to have to work that out because it's just little old me. If you've ever felt that way, can I, can I just share something with you that I believe with all my heart? If you're writing, taking notes that you may want to write this down. God will never ask you to do something without enabling you to do it. You realize that? God will never ask you to do something without enabling you to do it. You know these little nudges, I call them Holy Spirit nudges. It was like, go do that. I truly believe a lot of times that is from God himself. It's like, go and, 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 and react and respond and do and say. And God will give us the words and he'll enable us with the, the things that we need to do it. So after some convincing from God, Moses, he goes back to Egypt. He does exactly what God tells him to do. He goes to Pharaoh. He says, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And if you've read the chapter, then you know what? Pharaoh's like, fat chance. They're not, I'm not listening to you. And I don't care what God that you're claiming to be representing. I'm not letting them go. In fact, Moses' request made Pharaoh angry. And so what did he do? He made the lives of the Israelites even harder than they were before. Something you got to kind of understand about how pharaohs and kings of old kind of viewed themselves. They saw themselves on many levels as deity themselves. And so he's not going to let some puny guy like Moses, who's talking about some God that's out there, tell him what to do. In fact, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to not let the Israelites go. And a lot of times we'll read that and go, well, what does that mean? Did you come across that in the story where it says God hardened his heart and you kind of scratch your head and goes, what does that mean? Why would God do that? Doesn't God want them to leave? Why would God make it more difficult for them? Why would God influence Pharaoh to, to kind of puff up and say no? I believe it's because of this. I think God looks right into the heart of Pharaoh. And God has already determined because God's got an upper story, he sees beginning to end, he knows that Pharaoh's already got a hard heart, and Pharaoh is determined to never be a part of God's master plan. And so, since he's not going to follow God's upper story, God is going to use his disobedience to do two things. God's going to take this already hard heart of Pharaoh's, he knows he's never going to change, he's never going to turn his eyes to God, and he's going to use this to do two things. And the first one of those two things is this. He's going to show the world his power. God is going to use this disobedient Pharaoh to show the world his power. Now, something about the times that they were living in, there were no atheists in Egypt. They worship so many gods. Archaeologists are still digging up these gods that they worship, these statues and things. There were so many gods that they worshiped in, in Egypt. And, 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 and so the key here, question in the day was, which one of these gods is the most powerful god? So here you have Moses showing up representing God, and it means nothing to Pharaoh because they've got all kinds of gods who represent all kinds of things. And God is going to use Pharaoh's stubbornness to unleash these ten plagues so that over and over and time and time again, God will have this opportunity to display his undeniable power to not only show Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that, but the whole world that he is the one true God. Now, I'm going to show you here in just a minute why that is. So in a world that's polytheistic, many gods, our Heavenly Father, 
is going to stand above them all. And so Pharaoh is standing there, and Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no, and then God unleashes the first plague. And after that plague is over, Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, not on your life. And here comes another plague. And it's horrible. And Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, forget it. And then another plague. And then this is the cycle. This is the pattern that you read about. And so the first one, the first plague was what? Turning the, the Nile River into blood. That had to have been disgusting. I mean, think about all the things the Nile River is. You ever seen a map of this river? It's huge. The whole thing turned to blood. And the Bible even gives us this detail that even jars and things that housed, had water from the Nile turned to blood as well. The stink was awful for days. They had a god and a goddess of the Nile. And it's like God is saying, I'm more powerful than them. You want to keep messing with me, Pharaoh? I'll keep showing you. And then after that, there was the next plague. Do you remember? It was the plague of the frogs. Overrun with frogs. Do you know that they worshiped a God who's the head of this God looked just like a frog? And God's like, I'm more, I'm more powerful than Kermit. You want to keep testing me? You want to keep going down this road? What can Kermit do for you? Then the next one was gnats. They had a God for gnats. The next one was flies. They had a God for flies. Death of the livestock, boils, hail, locusts. The ninth plague was three days of darkness. Oh, they worshiped the sun god. It's like, where is your sun god? Where it cannot cut through the darkness of the... Where is he? And then the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. See, these plagues that God sends upon Egypt were not just a random collection of calamities. Each plague specifically targeted a god that these Egyptians worshipped. Now the tenth plague, the mother of all plagues, is not just a demonstration of God's power, but it's also a demonstration of God's plan. So I said God's going to use the stubbornness and disobedience of Pharaoh to do two things. One, to show the world his power. Here's the second one. He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart to show the world God's plan, to show him his power and to show him his plan this 10th and final plague i truly believe you could take the first nine plagues and you can add them all together and it wouldn't touch the horror of this 10th one moses tells pharaoh that the firstborn son in this entire land is gonna die pharaoh everybody from your house so you're the prisoner you've got locked up in the dungeon. Death is coming. And then Moses says to Pharaoh, when this happens, you are going to beg me to take the Israelites out of here. If you've read the story, you know what Pharaoh did. was like, uh-uh, I'm still not going to do it. And he says, Moses, if you ever show your face around here again, I'm going to kill you. And so Moses leaves. Do you got your story Bible? Can you open it up to page 51? Page 51. I just want to read a few sections of this together. So Moses goes back to the Israelites and he instructs them on what's going to happen. This is on the bottom part of page 51. It starts with, On that same night, 
I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Did you hear this? What's this also going to do? I'm bringing judgment on all these false gods that you're worshiping. I will reign over them. I will be the one true God. It will be the mark of this group of people that I'm taking out of here, that I will be their God and they will be my people. I will not share that position with anybody. He's showing his power. He's showing his plan. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this is what happens next. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Now, if you're one of those people that likes to write in your book, draw a line under Passover lamb. Passover lamb. This is a very, very important, important um, word here. It says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood. Underline blood as well. So Passover and blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood, underline blood again, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the door frames and he will, underline this word, pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. Now, the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years to, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Just out of curiosity, would you do something for me right now? If you are the firstborn male in your family, would you stand up? If you're the firstborn male, would you stand up? Okay, now this doesn't count all of your, your grandparents that would be firstborn or a lot of your children who are firstborn or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. Now just look, now if this was that night, all of you would have not have survived the night. Okay, thank you. Go ahead and sit down. This is why I say this was the plague of all plagues. What spared the Israelites from having their firstborn sons die that night? This is very important. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. They were saved 
by the blood of the Lamb, I would not be a very good pastor to you if I did not connect a dot from this night to the night that Jesus died. There is a direct link between these two things. God commanded the Israelites to be prepared to flee. In the evening of the death angel's visit, all the Israelites were to kill a lamb. And there was very specific instructions for how this lamb needed to be. It had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. And they were to take the blood of this lamb and cover the doorpost of their homes. They were marking their family. Now that this, this, this house is covered, and this would be a sign to the death angel to pass over them. The meal that Jesus ate with his disciples, the night that he was betrayed was the Passover meal. They were meeting to celebrate and commemorate what happened in Egypt all of those years ago. This is what we're reading is so central to, to Judaism and, and what they believed in, in Jesus' day. It's, it's the same meal, this Passover meal that Jesus was eating when he was betrayed. And what Jesus was doing is he's bridging a gap between God's deliverance of Israel and God's deliverance of all people through the blood that would be spilled hours later on the cross. Jesus became the Passover lamb. Jesus became the sacrifice for us. And on that night, on the first Passover, when they marked their homes with the blood of the lamb, there was coming a day when we would mark our hearts with the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb, who was without sin. That's why it could only be Jesus, without blemish, without defect, the perfect one, the sinless one, who gave his life for us to shed his blood for us, to deliver us from death. So you understand what it means when you're marked by the blood of Christ, when you have covered yourself, or this house belongs to God, I'm with him. It's like what the Israelites were doing back. We're going to be delivered because they're saying, we're with God. And this blood is a sign of that. And today, we're going to be delivered. You know the verse that says, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? We will not have to suffer the consequence, the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. We will pass right on to eternal life. Why? Because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. He was our deliverer. It's like us saying, I'm with Him. And I'm moving on to eternity. So this chapter is appropriately titled, Deliverance. And there is a direct link between the deliverance of Israel all those years ago and the deliverance of the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. So don't ever once think for a second that God doesn't love you and that God won't go to great lengths to be in a right relationship with you. He went all the way to the cross. Well, we're going to read a lot about these deliverance stories throughout the story with the the one we read about before our chapter closes is after the Israelites leave, you know what happened. Pharaoh's heart got hard again. And he's like, I can't believe I just let them go after them. And so he chases them all the way to the shores of the Red Sea. Do you remember the moment? Moses stretches out his hands and God does a miracle. The Red Sea parts. The Bible describes that there was a high wall on each side and all one, two, or three million Israelites, however many they were, went through the Red Sea on dry land. And the Egyptians were just foolish enough to follow them. 
but they didn't make it. You remember what happened. The seas came crashing down, and once again, God delivered. Friends, God is with you. There's nothing you're going through that God doesn't know about. Nothing escapes the notice of God. He knows your name. He knows your address. He knows where you live. He knows what you're going through. He sees you. He knows what you're going through, and he just wants to walk in fellowship with you. He is our deliverer, and he wants to deliver you. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father.